And good morning, listeners. This is Lalita Chalaya here, taking you through to 9 o'clock. Hope all of you are well. It's a very pleasant morning out there. And we have a packed program as usual. We have um, technicals from Europe updating us from the the, um, events that are happening in uh, Europe. And we have uh, another interview with um, Fiona Armstrong, who is from the Climate and Health Alliance, talking about how climate change affects our health. And we have Mark Anthony, a young person who is um, from the U.S. but lives in in Australia and is organizing for the elections or primaries in the U.S. And it's interesting to see what he's got to say. And we have, of course, uh, the week there was. And um, we will have uh, announcements as uh, per normal. So let's start with Jake who's got a lot to say on a couple of topics, so here we go. Welcome to 3CR, Dick, and thank you so much once again uh, for talking to us. Uh, my pleasure, Dwali. Yeah, and um, look, we, we've been a bit behind because we haven't talked about um, the Spanish elections since what the 20th of December, and we, we haven't caught up with the progress. <laughs> what is the progress with the negotiations? Dick, fill us in. No progress. Oh, Zero God. progress. <laughs> uh, what, the, what we judged would happen, or what a lot of people judged would happen after the elections, was that there would be no... It would be impossible to find a governing coalition because of the uh, arithmetic of the actual result. That is to say, the, the right wing uh, didn't have a majority. The, the left, the broad left parties, that is the, you know, the Socialist Party, the social, which is a Social Democratic Party, like... Uh, the Labour Party in Australia and the new radical force Podemos and the United Left, they had a majority, but the Socialist Party did not want to form a left government. That was the last thing they wanted to do, um, and there was a sort of veto on them forming a left government. Uh, so they tried then to they did a, an alliance with this new right party called Citizens, which is known as a hipster party here, um, <laughs> and which is like uh, the... It's really the PP, the uh, the popular party, the, the People's Party, the old corrupt ruling party here. Uh, it's like the sons and daughters of that party, mm, uh, that pretending is. to be new and fresh and... Yeah, uh, the next generation. And, mm. and, and, you know, not contaminated by, Frank, you know, the remains of the Francoist dictatorship or mm. holdovers from the Francoist dictatorship. Mm. So the Socialist Party did a deal with them. They had a proposal, which was not a majority. It was only uh, 130 seats in the 350-seat uh, parliament. But then they used that deal to put pressure on Podemos to come to the uh, party to agree to what they called a government of change, a government of progress. And really, this was just aimed at putting Podemos on the spot. But Podemos was good. They held the line. They said, no, the people, you know, there's a majority of people in this country who want a government of change, of real change. That is mm. to say, you've got a left majority in the country. Uh, we can form, despite the fact that the parliament in the voting system is undemocratic here, um, we can still get a majority for a such a government in the parliament. Uh, uh, that would rely on getting the abstention of the parties from Catalonia. Uh, and the, the, that gave the uh, Socialist Party the perfect excuse. We're not going to depend on the secessionists, the independentists, etc., uh, etc. Et so this went nowhere. Uh, at the same time, the PP judged correctly 
that they would not even... They, had, they were the relative majority. They got the highest number of seats, but they couldn't form a government by themselves. They judged correctly the best thing was just to let this, this interminable argy-bargy of negotiation go on um, and to keep calling for a broad uh, government of national stability, like a sort of German grosse coalition between the Social Democrats and the Conservatives, and uh, just not to do anything. So the... The acting Prime Minister, Mariana Rajoy, for the, for the People's Party, uh, didn't even offer himself to be, to be Prime Minister. Uh, so he didn't, he didn't want to expose himself to defeat in the Parliament. And uh, so that, what they're hoping for is that everybody is so depressed uh, that the next round of elections, or so apathetic, the next round, electoral round, the participation in the vote will drop. And, of course, the right wing always... Uh, gains from that. That's right. So that's where we're at, and we are headed towards new elections on June 26. So the campaign's Uh, begun. Well, the campaign's effectively begun, and it's begun with everybody uh, trying to find the message which will convince people that this is all the fault of somebody else. Um, So we've had a very venomous, venomous attack by... uh, by the leader of the Socialist Party, a bloke called by the name of Sanchez, Pedro Sanchez, on Pablo Iglesias, leader of Podemos, mm, mm. saying, uh, this people are so left-wing, they prefer to have Mariano Rajoy in government uh, rather than do a progressive government. But because this is all rhetoric and double-talk. That's right. Because the, the basic alliance between the PSOE and citizens... Uh, the nature of that document was that you know, the right-wing neoliberal, basically, you know, pretty much full-blown austerity policies with some adjustment, uh, full-blown austerity policies inherited from the present government, the present PP government, would continue. Then they tried to put a sort of glossy cover over it of left-sounding, progressive-sounding social policy, but that social policy will be impossible to implement with such an economic program. So you had a contradiction which was, you know, thinly papered over, the contradiction between the economic content of this deal and its social look, if I can put it that way. Mm. And at the same time, of course, it steered completely clear of saying anything or of trying to tackle the, uh, the national question in the Spanish state, which is the question of questions. So especially in, you know, Catalan, Catalan independence yes, movement. Yes. Well, you've got a, cat, a, pro, a pro-independence government in mm. Catalonia. Mm. So really we've, it's moved nowhere. Uh, basically what has happened is that the left majority in the country does not get a, could not get a left majority at the level of the institutions, parliamentary institutions and the central government, and the fault for that lies with the, uh, with the Socialist Party. But the interesting thing is, you know, you look around Europe, uh, not far from Europe, really. You've Corbyn mobilizing people in in Britain. You've got Sanders mobilizing people in the U.S. And look at what's happened in Iceland, you know. I I fail to understand how such a progressive bunch of people in in Spain uh, are unable to mobilize their people. Surely the people must be really frustrated with with this nonsense that's going on with this so-called leadership in Spain. Well, people have these things go in waves, and it's a bit like Greece too. You know, mm. there, there was massive mobilisations here mm. in 2011, 2012, 2013, which 
with you know a triple mobile and, and there still are massive mobilizations in Catalonia well, mm. we'll see the next uh, Catalan national day in September there'll be another two million people in the street that's that's you know for sure um, what happened on the social side was you had the big movement of the the indignados what's called the 15m movement which began in May 2011 here then you had massive and successful in some cases, mobilisations in defence of public services, public education, public health, um, and uh, the, social, the social wage. Uh, not fully successful, but some successes. Uh, but then the, what happened was, as happened in Greece, people realised that you can go on having mobilisations, but the key thing is you can't change anything until you have a progressive, a left government, a government of change, whatever you want to call the thing, mm-hmm. by a government that, in, that knocks over austerity and says, no, we're not going to... What comes first here is defending the welfare state, proper funding of education, proper funding of health, creating jobs for people, public investment for green energy, etc., etc., all the things that everybody agrees on. Yes. You know? uh, so that is... You, you can't sort of mobilise people just keep on mobilising people, and that's what's, what's happened here. Mm. Another element in this, which it's hard to work out exactly <coughs> what's the real cause of it, is that the union movement has just disappeared. Oh. The organised union movement, which, in, which used to be very strong, even in a very bureaucratic way, very bureaucratic, but at least it could have general strikes. You know, they call it a general strike, you'd have a general strike. Mm. But one of the effects of the crisis is there's been such an increase in unemployment yes. and such a decrease in confidence of these bureaucratised union leaderships, mm. which I mean, it's starting to change a bit now, but just painting it in broad brushstroke, yeah. and such a decline in confidence that they disappeared. Yeah. You know, you, you wouldn't know there was a union movement, even less than in Australia. Wow. Um, which is, you know, saying something, I think. Yes, yes. So, yeah, so that's, that makes a difference because you've, you have no mobilising, real mobilising initiative coming from anywhere at the moment. And it's more, it's more the leadership. It's more the leadership rather than, well, it's a mobilisation, but you have to have a concrete leadership that can take power, which is, which it, basically the whole process seems to be, to have been arrested by this negotiation process that's been going on for the last four months, literally, isn't it? Well, I don't think the negotiation process in itself has arrested it. I think that the negotiation process has made everybody feel crummier and, you know, more apathetic, and there's a lot of, uh, bad feeling about that and there's also a big challenge now for Podemos and the United Left to turn this around Yes, uh, and, and there's, well, there's good news here which I should mention which is Podemos and the United Left that stood separately hmm. in the December 20 election have agreed to stand together Oh, thank goodness for that uh, and So you'll have a United Left ticket Yep. To, uh, th- this will also include what they call the convergences or the confluences which is those parts of Spain like Galicia, uh, Valencia, um, Catalonia, yes. where left nationalist people stand with the Spanish forces that uh, support the right to self-determination of the nationalities. Um, so you've got Podemos and Izquierda Unida will stand together in those parts of Spain where that is not the case, and they'll stand together as they have already done as part of these broader confluences or convergences in 
Galicia, where the national question is strong, Catalonia, where it's the strongest of all, uh, and in Valencia and maybe even other places. So that means you'll have a sort of... <clears throat> you'll have left unity and left and left nationalist unity, which is very important because that would then gives us a chance of getting a majority, uh, more votes than the PSOE. Mm. And that's going to be the big fight in this, this election. Mm. Because in the, in the December, sorry, I'll just finish, the yeah, December sure. 20 election, Izquierda Unida and Podemos and these uh, convergences together got more votes than yeah. the PSOE. But because of this crummy electoral system here, which is very unfair, this was not reflected in more seats than the PSOE. Yeah. So they've got to stand together. And they're going to do that. Yeah, it's 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 a vote rigging across the world. It's it's been a pain, yes, for for um, I shouldn't say that on radio, should I? But it is a pain uh, for all left forces because it rigged in such a way that the left is frustrated with the way, um, even in 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 the in the USA where uh, Sanders constantly complains about it and. Uh, makes people aware of the gerrymandering that goes on in all sorts of different ways, people being disenfranchised and so on. But well, it's rigged really, here to give to to maintain a two-party system. Yeah, of course, that's, that's everywhere. Though even here, it's the same same bullshit yeah, that goes but it, on. But it, the trouble with the way they've rigged it here is that once you get past a certain threshold, which has been Podemos has got past, and which Izquierda and Podemos will get past. Uh, then it will come, it will bite them on the bum, frankly, to continue mm. the use of bad language, uh, because <laughs> it, they will then have the same proportion of votes as, as the two big, not so big parties anymore. Yeah. I um, wanted to ask you, Dick, about the, um, the role of the IMF, uh, WTO and so on, because they're watching Spain. I'm sure they're watching it like Hawk, because all these left progressive parties have, who have this, decided to get together are anti-austerity. So there is a challenge for this, um, you know, the 1% hegemony that's brought down Greece. So what is your feeling about that? Well, here you don't, we know, though of course nobody says anything openly, but we know that in Brussels, Brussels is the immediate yep. sort of source of, you know, nervous tick, not, not so much the IMF and the World Bank, but, you know, the European Commission. This, where they've got Greece is blowing up again because it's, yes. oh, that's a whole other story. That's not surprising, a, though, is it? It's not surprising Greece at all. Greece can blow up again because they want to ex- continue. They're running out of money. They can't keep up with their yes. debt repayments. Yes. Surprise, surprise. Oh, you, impose, you bleed the body and then it nearly dies and you, then your proposal is to carry on bleeding the body, you know? <laughs> anyway, that's all to one, to one side. Uh, here, the, we know from, from internal gossip that the European Commission is petrified about what could happen in, mm. in Spain. Yep. Because it's, and the, some silly person, and you can always rely on the Socialist Party, like the Labour Party in Australia, some silly person blurted out the truth. Yep. Oh, you wouldn't believe what the pressure we're coming under from Brussels. You wouldn't believe it. Mm. You wouldn't believe the things they're saying. Mm. So the uh, cat's out of the bag. Just, it just confirms the cat comes out of the bag. Just yep. confirms what you would already suspect to be be certain would be the case. Well, know? Scott, not, so, it's not rocket science though, because they're doing it everywhere, no. everywhere. So surely the Spanish people are intelligent enough to say, "Look, this is coming from Brussels, and we know it." And and, and perhaps Podemos need to do that 
much more openly and clearly to say, like, you want Brussels, vote for them. You, you don't want to well, say, here we go. That, I think what Podemos will face is a big challenge in this election campaign because they can't just repeat their election campaign from, for December 20, where they sort of didn't come out clearly and say, uh, this is a... You know, they, they based everything on their concrete policies, which are all fine, good policies, good, concrete, worked out, thoughtful, detailed, practical, doable policies, which anybody would tick. You know, anybody who thought, well, this is a way out of the mess, yes, agree with that, agree with that, tax the rich, etc., etc. Yep. But detail, not just slogans. Yep. Um, anyway, but this time it's going to be the filthiest election campaign you've ever seen mm. in Spanish history, and mm. uh, maybe... More than, well, more than Spain, because the Conservatives will say, do you want a repeat of the disaster of Greece? And they'll say it a lot more. Do you want a Venezuela in Europe? Mm. You know, and they'll use all the problems that the Venezuelan process is going through now. Mm. Um, and that plus all the filth, that will be, you, you, which I haven't got time to describe, will be, will be thrown at them. So now this can, it's going to be, Fear versus hope on yeah. a massive scale, yeah. uh, this election campaign. Uh, and the fear campaign will work if people are demobilised, if you know, they're, they're confused, etc., etc. In the last election campaign for December 20, Port Amos did a terrific election campaign and climbed up in the polls over the last, over three weeks, hmm. over two weeks, they climbed up. Now, already the suggestion was around that, oh, let's, have a, let's not have a big election campaign. People are tired of election campaigns. Anyway, we're spending too much money on elections, say these people who are you know, involved in tax dodging in, <laughs> in Panama. Of course. Uh, we're spending too much money on elections. So this is, this is meant to sort of make it as difficult as possible for Podemos to regenerate the sort of atmosphere they managed to generate yeah. uh, for the last election. Mm. So, yeah, that's, that's where we're at. And it, what they have to do is explain more clearly and in a more popular way, we have an alternative economic policy, this is doable, but don't think you can just elect a government and then sit down because it's not having a left government. A left government can't operate in government like any right government or normal administration because mm. it's operating in a hostile environment yeah. and it needs to have the support and the input of its, of its base. You know? If you have just tuned in, this is Solidarity Breakfast, and I'm Lalita Chilaya at the helm till 9 a.m. Currently, you're listening to an interview that was pre-recorded with Dick Nichols, who is the correspondent for Green Left Weekly in Spain, Barcelona. We're discussing the latest developments of what's happening in Spain and, of course, the refugee situation in Europe. We'll have a quick break before we continue with the discussion. Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. 
Well, so, see, electing a left government is only the beginning. That's why people don't seem to understand. They think, oh, well, we've elected them. They will get on in business. We will go back it, to doing our everyday stuff. It doesn't work like yeah. that. Mm, exactly mm. right. Mm. But mm. that's not ex- been explained clearly enough. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they'll That learn. message has not come through so far. But, I mean, I, I don't – I expect them – we're dealing with very clever people. I expect them to uh, – <laughs> Yes, of course. To, to, to come through with that. You know. mm. Okay, now let's uh, turn our attention to this um, latest shamozzles going on with the refugees. And um, I read this article, actually you wrote, about the left and its position on the EU and Turkey uh, deal over the refugee thing. It, it's a complete shamozzle that's going on with the, with the refugees. It, it's a breach of human rights in any terms, uh, you know, well, measurable terms. Yeah, I mean, more than, more than a shamozzle, Lali, it's, it's just a crime. It's just a crime. Yeah. It's, it's a massive crime. Um, the main criminals, of course, uh, is, is are the central powers in Europe. Yep. Uh, Greece has, again, been just put in a position, the most impossible position. Yeah. Um, where, you know, they just had been put against the wall by, it was decided, you know, what decided was? Austria closed its border. I know, that was so uh, Slovenia closed its border, therefore Serbia closed its border, therefore Macedonia closed its border with Greece, therefore everybody accumulates in Greece. Oh. Therefore, people are piling into Greece, refugees are piling into Greece, and... The, the word from Brussels is, well, you know, we've got to come to an agreement here. And so Greece has got no choice. The Greek government had no choice. Um, and they have got, they have been put into an, an absolutely impossible position. But I just, just this morning, the papers arrived here. There's an interview with the Greek ombudsman, uh, who's just, it's a very good interview where he just describes what a horrific, illegal thing this is. Uh, and how it's illegal to detain people in Greece. It's illegal for them to be shipped. They're being shipped back to Turkey illegally. Um, the the what is now a detention centre, but which was simply a place where people could stay while while they before this whole business was implemented, before this deal was implemented, and which the Pope visited. Uh, you know, there's all there's there's massive demonstrate there's demonstrations of the uh, people there, effectively the prisoners there. Uh, on Lesbos, and this is just going to get worse and worse. Mm. Uh, what, what, you know, one of the questions. One of the questions I want to put to you. Sorry, sorry, interrupt there. No, no, no. That's, I'm just want to say one last thing. Is is that you know, and they say, well, the like bloody Tony Abbott. Well, the the, the, the number of refugees coming through from Turkey has declined. Well, it's declined, mm. but it's still happening. Mm. But all it means is people are going to come through Libya. Yep. And so all that will happen is that you will see an increase in, you know, deaths in the Mediterranean because the, you know, you've got to travel over a much greater uh, expanse of water from from Libya to Lampedusa and other other spots. What I don't understand, Dick, is... Stand by for horrors is the... Why is it that Austria and um, Macedonia and so on are blocking the refugees who really want to go to Germany? Why do they say, look, you want to go? Go. Let's give you your transport. Go to Germany. Is it because Germany is surreptitiously putting pressure on these uh, countries or what? I imagine so. Yes, I imagine so. I'm not on top of all the detail here, but... uh, 
the Austrians acted on their own initiative. Initially, they did that, yes. And they had this meeting of the, I think it was called the Zagreb Group, which was of Austria plus... Plus? Austria plus all the uh, Balkan states. Uh, All the Balkan... Well, the old Austro-Hungarian Empire. But uh, they had a meeting of this group where they decided that they were going to cut... They were going to erect borders... Uh, border fences, and that was what uh, you know made it impossible for Greece in, the, in you know, forming this Mas- the, the Macedonia Greek border mm. at Idomeni, where there are still fifteen thousand people. Mm. So that's the that's what happened behind the scenes. That it's not that's what happened behind the scenes. But I, I imagine that there was very strong German pressure. Yeah, because in the in the German uh, elections for the Lander, like the regions, there was a big increase in the vote for the right. Right wing, that's right. Uh, that's right. And there was a uh, xenophobic right, not a huge, not overwhelming, but you know, worrying. Yep, but worrying enough for for them to yeah. to go behind the scenes, and you know, while yeah. publicly they were saying, oh, you know, we want the refugees to come in, blah blah blah, and and then it all went silent after the the. Uh, refugees numbers started to increase and it, 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 it continued for ages, didn't it? That's a problem. Well, isn't there ironies here? Because one of the motives, I think maybe even the principal motives for letting all the refugees come in in the first place was to wash Germany's image after its bully boy performance mm. with the Greece over the, um, over the uh, you know, payment of Greek debt. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so, you know, they, they could do that for a while and then, you know, some people got a bit confused by this, like Yanis Varoufakis came out and said, I don't agree with Matt, Mrs Merkel on many things, but she's done good work on this. Um, and that was true for a while, but they couldn't maintain that policy for long. Yeah, it was a bit out of kilter, which, you know, what, what uh, Germany normally does or the ruling class there normally does. But tell me about the response of the Spanish left to this EU Turkey agreement on the refugee? Well, I think, you know, in these horrible situations, you've got to take heart from human decency. And we've seen a lot of human decency, uh, a lot in the Mediterranean region, Mm. uh, in Spain, not just Spain. You know, there's been a lot of uh, volunteers from Spain, from Portugal, from Italy, going to Lesbos and going to the other Greek islands to help out. Mm. Uh, for example, from Catalonia, there's this NGO that calls itself Open Arms, uh, and it uh, is actually made up of kind of uh, emergency services professionals, mm. uh, like, uh, you know, firefighters and, uh, you know, and other, other emergency services people. And they went to Lesbos to help with all the people who were coming across from Turkey, and they saved a lot of lives. And their main spokesperson was actually, ele- uh, you know, elected Catalan of the Year, mm. kind of, uh, you know, a government recognition yep. here. Um, and they did terrific work. But I, did, I mention this because they they put out a call for volunteers and they wanted volunteers with skills, not, you know, just people turning up because they wanted to help. Yeah. But volunteers who already had particular skills, nurses, firefighters, 
uh, people, uh, lifesavers, etc., etc. And they got 4,000 people just volunteered wow. like that. That's amazing. A- amazing, amazing thing. And they actually had, it was a problem for them. Of course, they had to put three of their existing staff already completely overstretched onto processing um, all this, all these volunteers. Mm. But the, I mean, the main thing that I think has happened here is on the initiative of Barcelona City Council was to set up and promote a proposal for the councils to put up targets for accepting refugees. And in Catalonia, that was also taken up by the actual regional government uh, here. So Spain is supposed to take 14,000 or 15,000 refugees under the European agreement. They've so far taken six. Mm. Uh, I mean, this is just... I mean, the Pope went to... uh, Lesbos came back with twelve people. And <laughs> I, I, I was trying not to laugh. Said, Here, give, you know, the, the Vatican is the smallest state in the world. Uh, twelve people going to the Vatican would be the equivalent to you know how many thousand coming to Spain. You know, so they, you know, the Pope can do that in one hit, but we can't manage to organise anything. Um, but what the cities said was, they said to the European Commissioner for Refugees, while you deal with the state. This will be slow, bureaucratic, and people will be rejected. Hmm. And of course, there's also this big scare campaign about, well, who's, how do we know these people are really refugees? You know, oh, these people yes. struggling ashore. Well, in Lesbos could be ISIS operatives and, or things like that. You know? hmm. So you've got all that filth flying around. Mm. That's, that's usually the right-wing campaign. It's, it's, it's a self-righteousness, and it, it, yeah. as, a, as someone from Malaysia I, I, and India, I find this really, um, really makes my blood boil because the, mm. when they colonized countries, they didn't have permission from anyone. They just walked in and and grabbed people's land. And when now those lands are mess, and now you know partly because of the way the the world has has. Uh, divided economically and so on, and and most of the reasons is because of these first world nations who exploited the colonies. Now the people are coming to them for help, and they're being very self-righteous. Oh well, you know you're not fit to be here, or your economic and all those categories. You're an economic refugee, blah blah blah. It it it, uh, it really makes me angry. But anyway, it. it but no, that's right. I mean, and why shouldn't I? And and that's what's the the reaction here amongst the majority of ordinary people. I think there's a a big, a big distinction to make, or a sort of simple distinction to make, which is that most people here feel refugees are like us. Yep. And, we, and in Spain, of course, that's very strong because of the Civil War yes. and what happened after the Civil War. Mm. So, I mean, here there's a poster, the most powerful poster about this present crisis was just two photos, no words, just two photos. The top photo was of a pile of... Republican refugees leaving Spain before the Francoist onslaught in 1939. The bottom photo was a photo of the refugees leaving, you know, coming into Macedonia. Mm. And it was, you know, the same faces. The top photo was was black and white. The bottom photo was in colour. But it was extremely powerful. And it just, that was the sentiment. The sentiment here is give people a hand. You know, we understand what it's like. Yep. You know, so either you feel refugees are like us, and we could be in that situation, it's you know in a, in a different world, uh, or you feel they're a threat. That's it. Yeah. One or the other. Mm. You know?
And but in in, Spain, in the Spanish state, the, the ordinary sentiment, I'm just you know like the ordinary sentiment of ordinary people, is poor bastards. We should do something. Yeah. And it shows up in very simple ways, like the you know, a city's you know a little town says, we want to fill a truck and send it to Indomani. Yeah. Uh, and, and so send clothing to our, to this address and we'll fill the truck and we'll get a volunteer and we'll drive the truck to Indomani. Mm. And they end up having getting four or five or six trucks. Mm. You know, they yep. get oversubscribed. Yep. On all the, the ordinary people have a lot more business in them than in, in politicians, I guess, I, and we knew that anyway. Yeah. But it, it's, it's got to be turned the other way around. And, and as we always have said, until people are able to make those decisions, the system is not going to change or, you know, we need to overturn the system. That's what we say anyway. But it just drives me insane. Anyway. Sure. Well, what, just just let me finish. Just Let me just make a, a final comment, which is, of course, this is just going to, crisis is going to get deeper and deeper. You know, the, the idea that we can solve this by uh, putting out fences is like yep. the Australian illusion. I, mean, I think I, I read today that the... Uh, Manus Island is going to be closed. Yeah, it's been a couple of days. There's been a total racket and Dutton sticking to his guns. We're going to stop the boats yeah. coming in. That's his standard line. Yeah, now, now, now what? You know, so yeah, he's not going to allow a single person from Manus to be brought into Australia. That's his line. Yeah, well, of course, but um, that doesn't surprise, does it? But I mean, he doesn't even strike me as a human being the way he speaks. You know, any, any ordinary person, as you, you've just described, would think. Yeah, the, the one guy tried to set himself, well, he tried to emulate himself, really, in front of the UN HCR people who were visiting Manus uh, a couple of days ago. And he's in a serious condition in a hospital. Australia's human rights record is totally draconian, according to the uh, Amnesty International. So, and they have also see, seem, they seem to have influenced Europe in the way they treat refugees. And that is absolutely insane. Absolutely I, insane. I don't think it, it, it doesn't work. It's not because Australia sets a good example. I mean, that idiot no. Abbott was uh, over here lecturing, lecturing the English about how the way to handle these refugees is just to, uh, with tough love, and uh, you know, even conservative Tory ministers were heard saying, this bloke's just a fascist. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think the Australian method is the influence here? It's it's the just the whole. It, it's in the, it's the politics. It's the politics of the right versus the left yeah. in a situation where you've got rising uh, austerity doesn't go away. You've got a working class vote to the right because the left has not done its job properly. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's a whole, and it all arises out of that. I mean, there's no, not much Australian influence, if any, mm. uh, here in that. Yeah. And on that note, thank you very much, Dick. That's been an interesting, interesting discussion. And we shall see you in person, hopefully, the next time when you come You'll here for the conference. In two weeks' time, in Down Under. Yes, sounds good. Thank you so much. Okay, Thank you, Dick. And of course, the young man who tried to immolate himself um, died recently, very sadly enough. And this is a plight of refugees in this country. Okay, let's move on to something else. Um, we've got Fiona Armstrong online. She's the executive director of Climate, Cha Climate and Health Alliance, a highly qualified person. So let's have a chat to her. 
Morning, Fiona. Hello, how are you? Good, good, good. Now, um, you're a registered nurse and you've got um, lots of um, qualification, including being a journalist. So this would be a breeze for you. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see, yes. Now, what is the um, aim of your organisation? Sure. So the Climate and Health Alliance was set up in 2010, and it came out of, I think, what was, I think, an emerging realisation that the climate change issue was becoming increasingly urgent, but the voice of health professionals and health institutions was often missing in the climate debate. So the organisation was formed, I guess, um, like an ad, in the context of an advocacy coalition and and a network, so that people can work together um, to put forward views to government, to share information about climate change and health, and to help find solutions to make sure that when we make decisions about climate change and about public policy, that um, the health risks of climate change are being taken into account, and we're also developing policy. Um, in the context of climate change that recognises those risks to health and takes advantage of the opportunities for health from uh, strategic um, methods of cutting emissions. Okay, so you, you mentioned health risks and policies. So at this stage, what sort of health risks has your organisation identified? Well, I think there are many, really, and, and I'm sure listeners would be increasingly aware about the body of evidence around the links between health and climate change and um, intuitively understand them because they're probably experiencing them themselves. So, I mean, the global warming that's happening um, much more quickly than anticipated and we all feel in, um, you know, rising temperatures and um, see it in the records of heat that we're continually breaking. So Australia has experienced some of its worst heat waves on record and those obviously have significant impacts for health, um, particularly for people who are working outdoors. Um, and then we're you know, starting to see that in some parts of the country, in the peak of heat waves, it's actually becoming impossible to work outdoors. So mm. that's one impact. Then obviously there's uh, impacts associated with extreme weather, so bushfires, people being forced to flee from their towns and communities to escape from bushfires, um, the loss of property and livelihoods and the trauma that's associated with that. Um, I mean, those have significant health impacts, both physical and mental, and what we know from the evidence is that those impacts also last long after the natural disaster. So that applies also to, to floods. And then I guess there's the um, changing patterns of disease, and that's something that I think people are quite aware of in that um, vector-borne diseases like malaria and dengue and more recently Zika virus has hit the headlines because our, our warming planet and increases in um, regional temperatures has changed um, and expanded the zones in which mosquitoes can breed. So those diseases which, you know, carry a huge death toll globally, malaria and the serious risks associated with Zika are um, diseases that are certainly... Um, we face a greater risk from those as a result of climate change.
Mm. Um, what sort of influence have you been able to exert on the government so far? Like, what sort of policies do you think you've been able to initiate uh, in conjunction with your discussions with the government? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. <laughs> I think perhaps we've been more successful at the international level. Um, our alliance of 30 organisations here, which represent people from public health, nursing, midwifery, psychology, um, doctors, people who work in rural and remote areas, um, are also part of a, a global alliance, the Global Climate and Health Alliance, and we work with international organisations to bring an emphasis on health in the context of the international climate negotiations. So a lot of us were in Paris last year and have been at the international negotiations with quite a significant health presence since 2011. So I think um, in terms of successes, we probably would say that we've had more success so far at the international level and that in the recent Paris Agreement we've seen um, the right to health has been embedded in that policy. And there's also um, the co-benefits of health have been recognised for the first time in the International Climate Agreement. So when I talk about co-benefits for health, that means the additional benefits that accrue for health and well-being from strategies to cut emissions. So, for example, when we move to clean energy for electricity and transport and move away from coal and diesel, uh, we're reducing air pollution. So we're reducing um, greenhouse gas emissions, which is very important from a climate point of view, but also do, reducing that local and very harmful and often deadly air pollution for people at a local level. So that's, that's what's considered a co-benefit. So um, I think that will increasingly begin to impact on national policy um, as, that, um, as the implications for that agreement become clear. So at the national level, I guess you would say we've got a, a, a way to go. Um, I think where we have been successful is certainly raising awareness around health being um, an important issue in the context of climate change and helping to demonstrate that climate change is much more than an environmental issue. It's a very human, social issue, and it, and it does affect all of us as individuals, and it has significant impact on across our population in in, um, in ways that affect how we live. And um, so, one of the things that we're seeking to do in terms of policy um, in Australia, on the back of the Paris Agreement, and also informed by some work that we did last year, we ran a survey for the um, World Federation of Public Health Associations and looked at what countries are doing on climate change. So what, what nations have climate change and health plans or those that have climate change action plans? What are they, where is health in that? So on the basis of that evidence and um, what that demonstrated was that Australia lags behind comparable countries in responding to those risks. We're putting together an advocacy campaign to put to the federal government to say, um, there's a, a very important role for the health department, the health portfolio, um, to take responsibility and to take a lead in responding to the health risks of climate change. And we think, um, given the serious risks to climate change, I mean, we've got two international medical journals, the British Medical Journal and the Lancet, who've now declared climate change as a health emergency. Mm. Um, it's no longer adequate for our health 
federal health minister to say this is not an issue for me, that's an issue for the environment portfolio. We need to um, to have commitments from them and, and, and policy outcomes that can bring an integrated response and recognise that we need policy across all areas and, and much of that will have um, implications for health and can potentially bring benefits for health. Mm. The the other question, probably the um, the final question I wanted to ask is, Climate and Health Alliance has also a Pacific uh, aspect where you are the regional coordinator for that um, global green and healthy hospitals network, I believe. Um, yeah. I just wonder if you could fill us in about your role in the Pacific and, and you know, uh, who, who do you talk to and, and obviously the, the Pacific Islands are at a higher risk not just health, it, it's, it's life life and death issue for many of those smaller islands um, so what, what has been your role in relation to the Pacific? Yeah, thank you so um, that program that you refer to Global Green and Healthy Hospitals is an initiative of our international partner Healthcare Without Harm and so while it's a challenge to get policy results, one of the things that is very exciting about that program is that we're seeing enormous action from health institutions and organisations, hospitals and health services in responding to the risks of climate change and really stepping up in terms of taking control of their own carbon management and doing what they can to reduce their environmental footprint. So we coordinate what is known as the Pacific region of the Global Green and Healthy Hospitals Network. So that network was launched in 2012, and we now have 20,000 hospitals and health services as part of that network globally. So what that network provides is a an online community, a virtual community, and a, a network for people to work together, to collaborate, to share their successes and their challenges around implementing sustainability in healthcare to make their um, operations climate resilient. So there's a huge amount going on in terms of um, the health sector taking responsibility for their own emissions. And actually part of that initiative is a campaign called the Healthcare Climate Challenge where hospitals and health services are actually setting their own emissions reduction targets and committing to those and achieving them and um, and really demonstrating a lot of leadership. So that is a, you know, relentlessly positive initiative, I have to say, and um, and it's certainly one of the successes in, in relation to the work that we do. And we certainly hope that as that uh, network grows in Australia um, and in New Zealand, we don't um, have any hospitals or health services in what you might describe as, as the Pacific in terms of the Pacific Islands yet, but they are certainly, you know, also um, implementing these kinds of responses just simply because they have to. I mean, moving to renewable energy to give themselves energy security and really um, trying to lim- limit their impact on the earth often because they just don't have access to the resources to um, to generate the kind of damage that we do. So, um, yes, that's so that a key is point. a very positive very positive example of um, of where change is happening and, and it's change that isn't being led by government, but we certainly hope will begin to influence government and public policy. Mm. That's an enormous discussion in itself, isn't it? So we'll have to have a longer discussion another time about 
the detail because um, I really would like to know about what's happening in relation to the health professionals you, you probably are in touch with directly or indirectly and so on. So anyway, thank yeah, you so much. Sorry. No worries. Yep, lots of exciting stories to share there. So I'd Good. be happy to tell you some of the sort of specific examples another time. Yes, I will get back to you as soon as I can because um, we are running a little bit short of time here today and I had an excellent interview before and so on. But thank you very much, Fiona. It's very kind of you um, to be available this morning to talk to us on 3CR. No problem. Thanks Bye. for your time. That was Fiona Armstrong, who is from the... Climate Action, no, not Climate Action, Climate and Health Alliance, and has a massive role in um, trying to um, convince people that it's got um, climate change has got healthy um, implications for everybody. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and this is Solidarity Breakfast. I'll make a couple of quick announcements before we go on to Uncle Kevin. Tomorrow, of course, is May Day, and after a long time, uh, May Day actually coincides with Sunday. It should be a public holiday regardless, but that's my opinion. Okay, so on Sunday, 1st of May at 11 a.m., there will be um, lots of activities at Trades Hall on Ligon Street. There will be rides, and and it's it's like a family-centered activity, you know, activity organized by Trades Hall. And there is a concert straight after the march. Uh, from uh, after the march, you you can go back to um, Trade Hall, and there will be platform of uh, speakers and so on. The annual Labour May Day Victoria Trade Hall dinner is uh, oh, it's finished. That one this is the 29th of April. So the Trade Hall choir is. Um, what is that doing? The choir will perform on uh, Sunday at Trades Hall as they have done the for, for the past 24 years in, um, I guess, I'm assuming it's in, it'll be in Trades Hall, May 1st, tomorrow. So anyway, Trades Hall is going to be the hub of activity for May Day. And there's also a, a brunch organized by the um, Green Left Weekly people on um, at about 10.30 in the morning. Uh, at the Rosen Centre on the corner of Latrobe and Elizabeth Street. So you're welcome to attend that as well. There will be speakers there, um, and they'll be then marching, walking up to Trades Hall, and you can join them in the march. Now, let's go on to Kevin Healy. Uh, that'll, be, that'll add a bit of humour for the night. Here we go. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when amid the objective honouring of the glorious dead of invasion and train killing and slaughter, and, and sadly there was a perfidious report that the Turks consider we invaded them. Where did that come from? When all we were doing was sculpturing the great values we all cherish and which made this country what it is and us who we are. Train killing, slaughter, invasion, proud true blue Aussie values. Although I'm prepared to bet the glorious dead would much rather be the not-so-glorious alive. Amid a bit of honouring train killing, the left-wing commie media was running riot Tuesday morning, misleading the naive over the negative gearing debate. ABC Brecky Show telling us that Grattan Institute report showed under the Socialist Party policy house prices would drop by only 2% despite big Supremo Malcolm Tunner Bulls predicting a disastrous crash in house prices. 
Interesting that, because the same government says it wants house prices to be affordable, but they're the government, and this is capitalism, so there can't be a contradiction. And that Marxist rag, the true blue Aussie capitalist review, same story headline, Grattan backs expansion of socialist policy. Property values would fall less than 2%. And the Grattan Institute suggests even stronger measures than the socialists, hard as that is to believe. These changes will make houses more affordable, the report says. They will have minimal impact on rents or the rate of new development. Thank goodness, listener, we have balance. Non-agit prop nonsense by turning to the safe ideological haven of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. Same story headline, gearing change price blow. Scaling back negative gearing would cause property prices to fall by about 2%. The report, the Wapping Sin warns, acknowledges that making changes to the investment incentive would significantly hit the market. The Wapping Sin then quotes Malcolm saying just that and outlines the socialist disastrous anti-Trublowazi policy. Then for real balance, on the so-called Think Peace editorial page, an, ind an independent so-called Think Peace, Labor's negative gearing hits renters and owners. A scathing objective attack on the socialist policy by no less a reliable source than, yes, Malcolm Tunnerbull himself. Hope he's a member of the media union. N knowing Lord Rupert's commitment to balance, we can guarantee we'll get Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo little Billy Shorten Ambition's contribution any day now. But between the ABC and the Capitalist Review, those out-of-control lefty outlets on the one hand, and the Lord Rupert Media on the other, we wouldn't have known it was the same story. The Whopping Sin maintained this commitment to accuracy, to the news and nothing but, no editorial bias slant Thursday's coverage of the state budget. Although I have to say, when it comes to Lord Rupert, poor old state supremo hoo-hoo can't take a trick. Lord Rupert's still refusing to forgive the electorate for getting the election wrong. The sort of budget those who know what's good for us dream of. Big spending to bolster the big end of town's bottom lines alongside a huge surplus. That is, taxes raised and not being spent on what taxes are raised to do. Neoliberal paradise. And how does Lord Rupert respond? Dan's Tax Express, a record tax hall fueled by... Dan, by the way, is apparently who-who's name. Well, not the by-the-way bit, but the Dan bit. Anyway, Lord Rupert said if the socialists had all that money to splash about, they should have splashed it about through tax cuts to the rich. Having all that money to spend clearly proved the rich were being ripped off by the government, overtaxed, poor dears. Why waste taxes on infrastructure and services? Although, if a different government had come up with a similar budget, no doubt Lord Rupert would have praised putting all that profit into the bottom lines of those corporate beneficiaries. But Thursday, moving on from the P1 Tax Express, it's deeply philosophical and logically irrefutable editorial opened. The Andrews, Andrews also hoo-hoo apparently, the Andrews government has thrown megabucks at everything, care of a slew of tax grabs in the hope of restoring its political fortunes. Interesting logic that, given the only place where it's suggested the government's fortunes need restoring is the editorial columns of Lord Rupert's media, kind of a vicious straight line. 
not splashing money out in rural northern Victoria and most definitely not restoring her political fortunes, but splashing sheepshit all over her tray expensive footwear, Sophie Mora Bellicose told the electorate that threw her out last time, Yeah, yeah, my friend Tiny a bit more for the bosses took the 10 million off you the hospital would have got if you hadn't voted for that undeserving bitch. Serves you right, serves you right. That'll make you vote for little old wonderful me this year. And Sophie couldn't understand why the proverbial hit the fan, why everyone said that would make them not vote for the charming Sophie. Perhaps I should have said pig shit all over her tray expensive footwear because she was rolling this huge pork barrel at the time. Says heaps for Sophie's giant mind that she thought she was on a winner with, You got it wrong! Still couldn't happen to a nicer, could it? As we know, Sophie, Sophie is married to a senior train killer. Don't they deserve each other? And we can but imagine the humanity and empathy that would dominate their breakfast conversation. Humanity and empathy and not pork barrelling oozed from the Minister for Coshing the Workers, Macadia Cost the Workers, Cost the Workers, who announced workers would be far, far better off under a caring business class government if they were smart enough to re-elect Malcolm Macadia and the team. Uh, how would you make workers better off Macadia? Lower wages and reduced conditions. It's so obvious, yet stupid, stupid, evil unions and lazy avaricious workers can't see it. They need us to see it for them. As I told those wonderful pro-troop-lawazi, low-paid mum-and-dad investors, owner-driver, individual contractor truckies, when I addressed their workers' rally, well, their individual contractors' rally, as they fought for lower wages and lower conditions, all workers would be better off if they had the common sense to fight for lower wages and lower conditions. Uh, so, will Malcolm, will you address the May Day March tomorrow, Macalia? I will not participate or give legitimacy to long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work in an iron, evil, anti-troublawazi treachery. Individual contractors of the world unite. Uh, workers will be better off if they vote for you, you say, but you're already the government. Why aren't they better off now? Uh, because the anti-troublawazi socialists and the anti-troublawazi greens and the anti-troublawazi independents who shouldn't have been there in the first place have prevented us from crushing the evil unions and those lazy avaricious workers who falsely believe better off means being paid and having crippling conditions like safety and time off. Thankfully, if workers of the world can't unite at least capital can, free to move all over the world unrestricted at the touch of a screen, all over the world usually, well almost always via international hubs like Panama, the Caymans, Luxembourg, those sort of places. While events this week show thankfully workers, human beings, well non-owners of the means of production human beings are not free to move. Uh, what's that commotion? Oh, why, it's Malcolm and little Billy yelling at each other. We will be crueler than you. These illegal, no proper papers, queue-jumping boat people will never get here. Sack the lefty commie PNG Supreme Court. Wrong. We will be much crueler than you. I guarantee, under a short and ambition government I lead, these illegal, no proper papers, queue-jumping boat people will never get here. 
we would charge the PNG Supreme Court judges under true blue Aussie law and send them to Indonesia in other people's business for execution. I would send our border force to get them and these illegal people who are, after all, not in detention. Look, the minister for concentration camps raise a wire and sink the boats as painted this new sign, Manus Island Paradise Holiday Resort, proving it's not a detention centre. These people should be thankful. What's that, Peter? My name is Peter Duffer. My name is Peter Duffer. My name is... Yes, yes, but remember that other line I told you, the other line we talked about? My name is... Oh, was that... These illegal, no proper papers, queue-jumping boat people, true blue Aussies sent to the Manus Island Paradise Holiday Resort have nothing whatever to do with true blue Aussie. Smash the PNG Supreme Court. Well said, Peter, well said. I got it right, I got it right. I don't care how cruel you are. I guarantee the true blue Aussie people, a short and ambition government I lead, will be crueler much, much crueler, but with Socialist Party values. Those true blue Aussie values our brave train killers have guaranteed by invading countries all over the world like where these illegals come from. And we'll see you at the march tomorrow, little Billy. Normally I'd love to, but I'm afraid it's too close to the election to be seen with certain people like workers. Being seen with workers would threaten a short and ambition government I leads opportunities to help workers. But do tell them how cruel I'll be to these anti-True Blue Aussie illegal boat people who want to come here to take their jobs. Oh, pity. We'll, we'll miss little Billy. Despite that, we'll try to have a happy May Day. Good morning. Good morning, Uncle Kevin. And yes, a very sad story about the young man who tried to immolate himself um, and eventually died, I think it was yesterday. Uh, condolences to his family, of course. It's very sad. But let's move on to a couple of announcements before I put on the next interview, which is uh, actually a vibrant uh, young man talking about the U.S. So let's see. Um, we've got uh, the nurses' strike uh, 30th 30 years since the nurses' strike of 1986 event coming up, and that will be addressed by Irene Bolger, who was the secretary at that time of the Australian Nurses' Federation, and I'm speaking, as, as I was the organiser at that time as well, and Gwyneth Evans, who was the health and safety officer. So three of us were participants, organisers, and eyewitnesses. So three of us will be speaking, and you will hear directly from Irene about her difficulties, and uh, I'm going to give an international perspective about the the relevance and the impact um, and the significance of the the strike. The other one that's coming up, of course, is the No to Racism Camp uh, rally in Coburg on the 28th of May. It's at 11 a.m. at the Coburg Library, and there are uh, various speakers who will be speaking, and um, many many organisations have. Um, endorsed it. So it's a Moreland-specific rally, so anyone's um, invited to come. Now, the other um, disaster that's happened, which is the earthquake in Ecuador, there is a call for help, and people who wish to donate 
uh, being asked to donate to the Commonwealth Bank. The name of the account is Ecuador Vive, V-I-V-E-A, BSB 063-238, and the account is 1104-4708 for those who want to do bank transfers. There are uh, cash collections happening in a variety of places, although I don't have any details here. You can also join the Ecuadorian community in Australia to help find out how else you can help. So it was a 7.8 magnitude earthquake and there's massive um, repairs and recovery going on there, which is a very sad event. One last announcement, then we move on to the other interview. There's support for Jasmine Pilborough, who um, on the 2nd of February last year uh, was uh, calmly and peacefully refused to take a seat on a Qantas flight in an effort to prevent the forced removal of vulnerable asylum seekers from Australia to Sri Lanka. More than a year later, she's been charged with interference with a crew member of an aircraft under the Civil Aviation Act. She faces a maximum fine of $10,500 or two years imprisonment. So if you wish to support Jasmine at her court appearance, 8.30, Broadmeadows Magistrates Court, on the corner of Dimbula and Piersdale Parade, Broadmeadows, on the 10th of May. So please show your support to the young woman who was very brave in trying to save some asylum seekers being sent to death row, literally. And for those who um, are free for a few, um, a couple hours over the weekend or during the week, there's a house occupation going on, of course, in Bendigo Street in Collingwood. Some young people who have occupied some houses that have been vacant for a couple of years. Um, it belongs to the East West Link, of course, and there has been a huge um, event going on there because of the occupation. The police are, are roaming around trying to pick on them, but nothing has happened so far. But at least some people have been able to find some houses to, to stay in, uh, temporarily at least. And don't forget, tomorrow is May Day and everybody to Trades Hall. Now let's go on to this interview. This is about um, the U.S. elections, but a, a different point of view. It's Mark Anthony Dodson, who um, is part of a group in Australia, and there's a few branches in different uh, main cities who have been actively um, trying to support Saunders all the way from here. So here we go, Mark Anthony Dodson, and another young man's with him, Tim Mathis, who's also working busily on the computer trying to do this campaign. Okay, thank you so much for being available to 3CR, Mark. It's, it's good to have somebody um, from the U.S. Uh, talking about um, elections in uh, the U.S. is a very, very hot topic around the world. So tell us how you, you started um, becoming involved in this campaign. Sure. Well, um, I heard about Bernie Sanders about a year ago on Facebook, and I really liked uh, his policies. Uh, I hadn't really seen a candidate as progressive as him in a long time. And uh, so, I, you know, living in Australia, I wanted to get involved however I could. Um, yeah, so I, I found um, I wanted to get involved however I could from Australia. So I searched for uh, the Facebook page, uh, a face, local Facebook page, and I found Australians supporting Bernie Sanders. Um, at the time that I found it, it had about 80 likes, um, and I asked the admin if I could take over and, um, yeah, just try to 
create a, a movement in Australia. And um, so I was posting, you know, every day, more than once a day. And I got it over up uh, to over a thousand likes uh, over the next several months. And uh, yeah, that's the, the, around the time that Mathis came along and we started organizing, uh, or Mathis really helped uh, organizing uh, phone banks, phone bank parties. And uh, yeah, we've been going from there. Sounds like a very committed group of people here. So tell me, uh, Mark, one of the impressions people have overseas is that Americans are not very political. Based on the fact that only 30% vote, and you really don't hear much about the politically af- uh, um, active people in, in uh, America. You always say negative things about America. So how has the Son- Sanders campaign brought that different view of the U.S., uh, people of the U.S., the working class really, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think there is still a really big problem of working class people not voting and not being politically active. Um, I think uh, much like Obama did, uh, Bernie Sanders is is uh, exciting a lot of um, younger voters, people that are you know registering for the first time to vote. And I think it's because of his progressive politics. I think the the next generation or millennials uh, do. They, you know, they tend to be a bit more progressive. Uh, they lean farther left uh, than the, the Democrat Party as it is now. And I think um, Bernie Sanders has uh, kind of given them a voice. I think before he came along, we always sort of looked at politics as voting for the lesser of two evils. And I think most a lot of people don't even want to um, engage in that. They don't, they, they don't even want to participate in a system where they have to vote for someone they don't really believe in, but they're better than the other person. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's important. I think people are realizing that their voice or that their vote can actually make a big difference. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really sad that we are, as far as democracies around the world, I think we rank 45th place as far as voter turnout. And that's why I think we have, you know, a Republican controlled Congress. And, um, I don't think that we can get much done because the people aren't speaking up for themselves. And I think Bernie Sanders is, is doing a really good job of letting people know, yes, if we do stand up together, if all of us, you know, whether you're, uh, you know, Christian, Muslim, atheist, gay, straight, white, black, doesn't matter, if we all stand up together and fight the system, we can uh, see the changes that we want. Sounds good. Tell me the, the impact Sanders may have internationally if he wins the primary. So that's still a big question to, to be answered because he's got another five states to go, hasn't he? So what do you think the international impact will be if Sanders does um, win the primaries? Um, the international impact? Well, I, just, I, think, I think there are a lot of countries want to, are also wanting to move in a progressive direction. I feel it here in Australia. Um, you know, there are a lot of Jeremy Corbyn fans or supporters in, in the UK. And I think if he wins the primaries and we move on to a general election, I do firmly believe that he would win in a general election. And... Um, I think it would just send a message to a lot of other countries that, hey, progressive policies, but um, I feel like, you know, we, we do need to get our act together as far as climate change and and as far as uh, equal rights, whether we're talking about gay rights. I think, yeah, we, we, want, we want to, uh, I think a lot of people around the world want to move in a progressive direction. Um, and I think that we really need to focus on civil rights and gay rights and m- most importantly, climate change. Um, and I think that if he wins the primaries and then goes on to win the general election, it will send a message to the rest of the world that, you know, these are policies that, that other countries need to start supporting because I, I think they're sustainable policies. Mm. It all looks good, but I, I have a great fear of Wall Street's strength. 
and the World Trade Organization and all the 1% of the, you know, their power, their, their money behind them. Mm-hmm. I fear that they would do something awful. You guys assassinate your, your president. <laughs> I am worried yeah. about that. But what do you think the backlash could be from the 1% in the U.S. if Saunders even wins the primaries? Yeah, I mean, I, I do worry about that, too, because anytime we have someone stepping up and saying these kinds of things, like JFK and you know Martin Luther King Jr., bad things happen. And, um, yeah, I mean, I can't really answer that. I'm not really sure. Uh, I'm sure that... I'm sure that there could be attempts, uh, but I I know that Bernie Sanders said one of his litmus tests for for um, being included in his administration is that you will do everything you can to overturn Citizens United, and Citizens United was that Supreme Court ruling that allowed corporations to funnel millions and millions of dollars um, into uh, candidates, so they're, so they're basically buying elections and buying candidates, and I think if we can overturn that, we can really take a lot of power away from the 1% and really start to, to get things done. And God forbid, if something were to happen to Bernie Sanders, I trust that he would have a brilliant team of people uh, that would continue his fight. Um, you know, it's not like we would just hand it. If, if, if something bad were to happen to him, we would just hand it over to Republicans. I think, I think he's fired up an entire... Um, generation of people yes, um, yes. that are willing to fight on beyond him. So, you know, even if um, even if he doesn't win, the things that the way he's changed the the Democratic Party or the the, the perception of the Democratic Party and and the direction that he's going to move our country in politically, I think he's done he's done so much. So in my in my view, he's already he's already won. Mm. We've already won so much with this campaign. But mm. um, yeah, I do trust that he'll have a brilliant team of people in his administration. Okay. The other question I have is uh, a question about Trump, really. I don't know how familiar you are with the opposition, so to speak. Um, there's this question floating around, you know, that Trump relates to the white working class. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered if you had some thoughts on that, because that is a question, even in Australia, you, with the UPF and so on, who are speaking to people who are part of the so-called white working class, who have, you know, mm-hmm. compared themselves and how they are treated by the system and pitching themselves against whether it's refugees or blacks or, or, or any, any uh, what they call aliens in America, I guess. Uh, here we call them migrants. Um, so wh- what is your view that tr- this Trump's engagement with the so-called white working class? Well, I think, I think the reason that he relates to the working class it's because he has very, very simple solutions um, that sound great to some of these people. So the simple solutions are it's it's the Mexicans. They're coming in and they're taking your jobs. We should build a wall yes. and that will take care <laughs> of your problem. It's the Muslims that are coming in and threatening our values, our you know, Christian values. You're completely ignoring the, uh, the idea of separation of church and state. Let's let's scapegoat the Muslims. Uh, let's scapegoat the gays. Um, I think, you know, Donald Trump did say that he he didn't like the Supreme Court ruling that favored um, or that the, the, so sorry, the Supreme Court ruling in favor of a gay marriage. So, you know, let's let's scapegoat the gays. He has these really simple solutions. Hmm. And I think that we're so used to I think media has kind of dumbed us down. We're so used to like quick, quick taglines, quick solutions. Um, you know, we, we don't want to hear a long convoluted policy and and bernie sanders is a very smart guy in my opinion very smart candidate he has a lot of very um complex policies and he he, he 
wants to bring us together and, and fight the the 1%. But to explain government corruption to someone, that's I think that's really difficult to to explain how lobbyists buy um, politicians, how they buy them, how they influence. That's really complicated. What's much easier for someone to digest is, hey, it's the Mexicans. Hey, it's mm. the Muslims. And so I think that's why he appeals so well to to a lot of white working class people. Um and I also, and this sounds awful, but I also kind of blame our educational system. We have a really, really poor educational system. And I think yes. that also, um, we, we just don't, yeah, we had just terrible uh, education levels in America. And I think people don't want to, don't want to invest. They don't want to research. They don't want to think too much. And uh, and again, Trump is the candidate for them because he just has these really simple solutions. Yes, uh, we, that, we, that is true. You know, we have we have an education system not just in the U.S. Even here, where you are told how to think, not allowed to think and investigate for yourself. Uh, you you yeah. are you're not encouraged to think for yourself because that's too dangerous for the system. Uh, you know, you've got to be told this is how you think. This is right. That's wrong. Uh, this is us, that is them. It's the divisive politics that also infiltrates education, and that's very clear in, in many of the educational systems. As you said before, it's the separation of state and religion. It doesn't matter what religion it is. It's vital. And, and here and in America, you'll find that uh, that's an intersection. You know, they, they come and go as they please. And, and it's, it's like, a bit like what um, Trump said on the abortion question, that inflamed women across the world, not just the U.S. So he's got mm-hmm. some um, major issues. Um, I'm a hope we can hope that um, only hope that he doesn't win the primaries of the U.S. because that's going to be terribly dangerous. For the, world. the other question that worries me about this, uh, the Trump uh, win is his policy on war. That is a real problem. Um, mm-hmm. I know Sanders is, prog- Sanders is progressive on this issue, but how familiar are you with Trump's? policies on the international economy and a desire to go to war? Um, I'm actually not too familiar. I, I know that he, as far as international economy, I mean, locally, he's, I know he's wanting to, he criticizes the same uh, trade um, deals that, that Bernie Sanders criticizes. Um, so he's all about, you know, keeping, keeping jobs uh, in America. Um, as far as international policy, I'm actually not too familiar. Maybe Mathis is more familiar with that. And what about the, the question of war? Because the, America has gone to war consistently over the last six, seven decades or more. Um, I think yeah. the big ones, the Vietnam War, which radicalized a lot of uh, young people of my generation a long time ago. <laughs> so how mm-hmm. do the young people today in America feel about war? I mean, there must be a question that, that is taken up by these candidates. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think th- this generation, millennials, they question more often the motives of going to war. I mean, why are we going there? Because we want resources, the resources, or is there actually uh, a real reason? Or, you know, is there, is there another way that we can go about this? Um, I mean, as you know, Bernie Sanders voted against the war in mm-hmm. Iraq. Yep. Um, and he championed, or, uh, protested the Vietnam War back when he, when he was younger. And he, for the most part, he's, he's anti-war. He's, he's voted for a few, or for a couple of wars. Um, in, are in favor of a couple of wars, but yeah, I think this generation, millennials, they're they're they question things a lot more um, when it comes to when it comes to war. Yeah, and I think also that the amount of money that we spend on military, I think uh, more people are questioning that. I, I was I watched uh, Michael Moore's new documentary. Isn't that the other am- night. amazing? Uh, isn't it? Uh, yeah, where to invade next? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Very good. And I forget which country it was, but um, it showed you exactly where um, your taxes go on your paycheck. It tells you every single cent <laughs> that's set and yeah. where it goes. And and um, in America, we don't see that. We don't know where our taxes are going. And if we did, we'd see that they, we have a lot of money going towards bailouts and a lot of money going towards uh, military spending. More than 50% of the American budget is spent on defense. Supposedly, yeah. defense actually should be called war, but it's called defense. A euphemistic name, but yeah. that's how they do it. I was going to say that you know Bernie talks about uh, these other militaries. For example, Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think they they spend uh, as far as as far as spending around the world. I think they come in fourth for uh, amount of spending amount of money that goes into their military. And he, I think he he wants pressure uh, more countries in the Middle East to to um, get involved with uh, you know the various initiatives like the fight. Uh, against ISIS. I mean, I think, I think he thinks that we need to stop being the world police, basically, and spending all of our, our money on that, uh, and then sort of overlooking what American citizens actually need. I mean, when you have middle class wages that have stagnated for the past 40 years, you know, there have been a minimum wage of $7.50. It's just, and they say you can't do that. We can't get this done. You can't get that money for it. There's no money for it. I mean, I think that at some point you have to give a little bit back to the middle class. And I think if we really look at military spending, we can see some places where we could potentially cut back. Mm, I would say cut all the bloody things back. What What is a, mm. it's a gain in, in killing other people always? You know, one of the things that uh, the question of war conjures up for me is the the um, the mind of a young person, and Mathis probably relates to this a bit more than uh, than anybody else, is how do you how do you convince a young man to go and kill somebody he has no connection with. He doesn't know them. And he doesn't know the reason yeah. as to why he's killing this particular person. And that must, you know, come across people's minds when they think of this war budget, surely. I mean, they, they, the, the American young people copped in, in Vietnam and, and, you know, Korea and you, and you can keep going. But I, it just baffles me that the American people don't respond to the government's campaigns to go to war. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's it's just the propaganda that we're fed. Of, um, you know, at the moment, and, you know, we, we talk about Muslim terrorists and and it just the the way you the wording that they use. I mean, it just it really divides us. Mm. Um, and I think people, um, yeah, just have very racist and prejudiced thoughts about <laughs> these other it's, cultures, and and it's easy to see them as the other. It's the power of the media as well, isn't it? But anyway, um, so good luck with your campaign. Fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to 3CR, uh, Mark, and hopefully we'll um, talk again. That was Mark Anthony Dotson, um, who is a vibrant young man, energetic, and uh, certainly committed to changing things in the U.S. But something really interesting happened while we were having this discussion, and I'd like listeners to listen to this because it shows how sinister the election machines are. It's only about three minutes, so bear with me. Facebook groups about Bernie Sanders with a like, communal um, viewership membership of over 100,000 people have um, been temporarily deleted on Facebook. Oh, God. Really? Yeah, I've, um, <laughs> I've just made a, uh, I made a, like, a post earlier about this. Um, yeah, um, so what has happened... Like the 
Yeah, I mean, it's all theories, but um, apparently Hillary Clinton, one of her super, super PACs, um, high, spent $1 million on online trolls. Or um, basically, um, it's, a, it's a campaign, it's a thing called Correct the Record. And it's people who work um, professionally on the Internet um, to, um, to fight against the so-called lies from the, from the Bernie campaign. And um, what has yeah what has happened is that um, lots of uh, a couple of these big big Facebook groups, for example, um, I believe in Bernie Sanders, have just disappeared. I've just checked like we had one of our posts being shared in that group, and I tried to find the post, but uh, um, it was it, it's not on. I think it's not on our on our Facebook page anymore on Australians supporting Bernie Sanders. Mm. And and we've just received like uh, someone sent us a message, and it. it like he is, it's just, a, it's just a screenshot, but it says, um, please share this, this to any Bernie groups you're in. The online activist group Hillary Super PAC hired, basically paid trolls, are striking tonight by spamming, by spamming the report to Facebook, report post to Facebook feature on posts in Bernie groups. They've su- successfully shut down three of the largest Bernie groups within the past 20 minutes. Bernie Believers, Bernie Activists, and Bernie Sanders is my hero had over 120,000 group members. I've just checked Bernie Sanders is my hero, and that one is back online. But there's lots of posts in it about, um, yeah, about it having um, temporarily disappeared. Wow, yeah. I'm looking at it now. I'm seeing that they're just back up. Well, this shows how scared they are. <laughs> so. You need to get in touch with WikiLeaks and, and Snowden to help you guys. I hope he can come to the rescue with something. <laughs> <laughs> Email him. He might help you. <laughs> you never know. You, know, you <laughs> just never know. you got to try your luck. Unless you ask, you don't get an answer. That, that, that's my policy. Ask. They can only say yes or no. That, that's, <laughs> that's what I follow. If they say no, that's fine. But if, if you get, get a yes... You're on the move, you know, we can, we can yeah. do it. That's, that's the important thing. Because this is ridiculous, what they're doing. But anyway, there's your, your, my suggestion from you guy, to you guys to, to try and do something. All right, thanks, thanks to both of you. And, um, Absolutely. Okay. Perfect. Always happy. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So that was a sinister um, underground or Internet uh, activities that are happening within the Democrats where trolls are being used to delete the Sanders campaign posting. So there's a dirty war uh, that's going on. But we have almost come to the end of the program. And let me thank uh, Dick Nichols from Barcelona, Spain, and um, Fiona Armstrong from Climate and Health Actions, and, of course, uh, Mark Anthony Dunstan and Mathis from the Supports uh, Sanders Campaign in Australia. And, of course, Uncle Kevin. Um, so I hope you guys, as listeners, have enjoyed the show. Um, a bit of excitement there with the trolls and so on. But let me also remind you that these programs that we run are also available on podcast. And Solidarity Breakfast has its own website. It's all the W's. Solidarity Breakfast in one word dot org dot au and we post as much information on that as possible especially Humphrey McQueen's um, interviews and lots of material that he gives us 